Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. From iHeartRadio and Tribeca Studios, this is Fierce. I can't type. Yes, women workers do present problems, Joan. A podcast about the incredible women who never made it in your history books and the modern women carrying on their legacies today. Here's to the ladies, the fair and the weak. I can't file. The women workers don't mind routine, repetitive work. Will you make a copy of this? Naturally. Each week, we're bringing you the story of a groundbreaking woman from the past who made huge contributions to the present, but whose name still isn't on the tips of our tongues, for whatever reason. Maybe it's because men wrote most of history. At the end of each episode, I'll be joined by a woman living today who's standing on the shoulders of this historical figure, whether she knows it or not. Do you know, many years ago, when I was playing at the Latin Quarter in New York, Pat Suzuki sang this wonderful tune, which became my theme song. See if you remember it. I'm a girl, and by me that's only great. I am proud that my silhouette is... Imagine being so newsworthy that you knock a successful test of the H-bomb right off the front page of the newspaper. Not just that, but you're suddenly more intriguing than Jonas Salk and his polio vaccine, the war in Korea, and the Rosenberg trial. This newsworthy character... The one whose voice you hear singing in the background was a young woman from the Bronx. Her name was Christine Jorgensen. By the spring of 1954, more newsprint had been generated about Christine than about any other individual person. She was an instant celebrity. But Christine wasn't used to this. She wasn't an actress or a musician, someone who craved the spotlight. No. The spotlight was thrust upon her, following a series of operations which completed her medical transition from male to female. She was the first American to publicly undergo this kind of surgery. 
The New York Daily News' first headline about Christine read, XGI becomes blonde beauty. Operations transform Bronx youth. A large photograph on the left takes up most of the front page. It's Christine in profile. She's lit like a Hollywood starlet to show off her sharp cheekbones. On the right is an older photo of Christine. A before photo. A kind of dopey-looking G.I. in a uniform. Closely cropped hair, protruding ears. From the outside, they look like completely different people. But on the inside, they're the same. They're both Christine. Now, this was the 1950s. The word transsexual had only been used in the English language three years earlier. And what it meant wasn't entirely understood by most people. There was no playbook for this. There was no language to describe what Christine had done, what she was going to do, or how she'd live her life after her surgery. I mean, it was an othering curiosity. There's no question about that. I mean, if, if I were getting that kind of coverage today, I'd feel like I was a, you know, a zoo animal. That's Sarah McBride. She's the national press secretary for the Human Rights Campaign, and at the time of this recording, a candidate for state senate in Delaware. Sarah made her own national headlines when she came out as transgender while wrapping up her term serving as the student body president of American University in 2012. Sarah knew what language to use when she came out, mostly because of the path that Christine had blazed before her. But Christine didn't have that language. Christine had no idea what pronouns to use. In this episode, we want to be using the right pronouns, and that's why we're going to talk a little bit about it right now. When we talk about Christine, even before she had her surgery, we'll always refer to her by the pronouns she and her. Here's Sarah explaining why that matters. So pronouns are the most frequent way we affirm a person's humanity. Pronouns, along with names, are the way we bestow personhood and individuality. Uh, When we want to dehumanize and diminish a person, we replace their human pronouns with it, and we change their name to a number or a slur. Christine was born George Jorgensen. But in this episode, we're not going to call her George. Just like I've always been Sarah, and I was Sarah before I came out, Christine was always Christine. Christine's story starts in the Bronx in 1926. She was promised a future that was blessed with all the privileges of a white, Christian, middle-class American man living in New York City. Christine and her older sister Dolly were inseparable, and Christine idolized her. But even with Dolly around, Christine was intensely withdrawn and lonely as a child. In her autobiography, Christine wrote, I developed into a frail, toe-headed, introverted child, but I learned early on that society laid down firm ground rules concerning my behavior. A little boy wore trousers, had his hair cut short. He had to learn to use his fists aggressively, participate in athletics, and most important of all, little boys didn't cry. That's an actress reading Christine's words. Most of her quotes were found in her autobiography. Christine asked her mom over and over again why she couldn't dress like Dolly, play with dolls like Dolly. She asked her mom why God didn't just make them alike. Christine's mother tried to explain that we don't always get to choose if we're a boy or a girl. She said that gender is one of God's surprises. I don't like the kind of surprise that God made me. As you might imagine, puberty was even worse. Christine felt awkward and avoided the usual adolescent touchstones like school dances. 
She was stuck in this confusing masculine costume that never felt right. The boys at school and camp asked if she was a girl dressed in boys' clothes. They called her a sissy. In her mind, Christine started to describe herself as a feminine boy. She didn't have any other words to use. When she was 16, the acute feelings of loneliness completely overtook her. She wrote, I recall I was even more keenly aware I was different from other boys. Once, I overheard one of them say, George is a strange guy. At other times, they didn't have to say it. I could read it in their attitudes. Christine had a very particular way of describing her physical body back then. My body was not only slight, but it lacked other development usual in a male. I had no hair on my chest, arms, or legs. The gestures of my hands were effeminate, and my voice also had a feminine quality. The sex organs that determine my classification as a male were underdeveloped. I've always had the feelings, the emotions of a girl. I always wanted the things girls wanted. What is masculine and what is feminine? That question plagued Christine. And it began a fumbling period of self-analysis that mostly involved trips to the library and a study of books about homosexuality and sexual deviation. Those were the only kinds of books available on the subject. And they left her even more confused than when she started. Christine was terrified of being classified as an admitted homosexual. I can't even think of a relationship like that with another man. I noticed them, not as a man, but as a woman might. Christine was beating herself up. She was desperate to find some kind of answer for why she was the way she was, and whether or not there was a way to fix it. Whether there was a way to make herself more manly. She didn't think the opposite of that would ever be possible. I'm determined to behave like a man, even if I don't feel like one. She got deep into the science of it all. She began reading up on endocrinology, the study of the body's glands and hormones. One case study told her about the masculinization of a female chicken and the return to vigor of a castrated rooster through the use of hormones. She made a visit to a hormone doctor, spilled her heart out right there in the office. She told him she'd tried to live as a man, but she admitted, I've been a total failure at it. She tried to describe the physical differences in her body, her emotions, her mind. The doctor just dismissed her. He sent her to see a shrink to guide her away from what he referred to as feminine inclinations. But Christine eventually managed to find this one book in the library. It was called The Male Hormone. It taught Christine that there were things she could do to make her body more feminine. Specifically, there was a hormone called estradiol that might do the trick. She was fascinated by the science behind it because it's fascinating. The chemical difference between testosterone and estradiol was minuscule, Four atoms of hydrogen, one of carbon. It was the discovery of the estradiol that made Christine realize she didn't have to conform to the way God made her. But there was a different answer. Maybe she could use the hormones to become more feminine instead of more masculine. That book infused Christine with a new hope. She left the library and bought herself her very own copy. She read it over and over again, dog-eared it as she tried to plot her next move. I was 23 years old, and unless I could find a solution soon, I knew I'd have to resign myself to a life of frustration and despair. She decided she'd experiment on herself. She needed to get the hormone pills. 
I don't think I had any idea how I was going to go about acquiring it at that moment, for I knew I couldn't buy it legally without a prescription, but I also knew I would have to try it. My desperation was so great at that point that I was willing to try anything. Christine drove to an unfamiliar section of town to go to the pharmacy. She ordered a few standard items from the clerk before putting on her most authoritative voice. That's when she asked for a hundred tablets of high-potency estradiol. Now, drugstores during this day were a little less regulated than they are now. But the pharmacist was still rightfully skeptical. He informed her that the pills were pretty strong stuff. You're going to need a prescription for this. But that wasn't going to stop Christine. She made up a story right on the spot. She lied and said she was at medical technician school. That she was working on a study on the growth stimulation of animals through the use of hormones. She apologized profusely for not asking her supervising doctor for a prescription. Christine was always unfailingly polite, and also unfailingly charming. Sure enough, her charm worked. The clerk gave her the pills. There in my hand lay another series of atoms which, in their way, might set off another explosion, one I hoped would not be a destructive force, but would help to make me a whole person. She went to bed that night and prayed to God to forgive her. Taking the pills made her feel fresh, alive. She described a strange sensation and sensitivity in her breast area by the eighth day of taking them. For the first time in her life, she believed that her physical body could finally catch up to the rest of her. She thought she'd stumbled on a magic solution. A solution that would allow her to live the life her heart and mind told her she was always meant to live. From then on, she said, I was even more determined to follow the dream. The taste of it, that little taste, it made Christine need even more. She needed to find a doctor who would help her fully make her transition. And it wasn't going to be easy. Christine confided in a doctor friend. He told her that the kinds of treatments and operations that Christine wanted weren't considered ethical. In fact, in America, they might even be considered illegal. There were so many arguments against these kinds of treatments at the time. That to change your gender went against nature. That it went against God. That it was playing God. Her friend told her there were a limited number of medical transition cases, and that these were mostly taking place in Scandinavian countries— Sweden, Denmark. Christine squirreled away her money and finally headed to Copenhagen in search of a doctor to help her. Modern Copenhagen is a lovely city, a busy city. Traffic in the Russia. She called it her one way ticket to a new life. I began to feel whole, nearly fulfilled, as if I'd already projected myself into the future. In Copenhagen, Christine stayed with her aunt, and she confessed her reason for visiting. She spoke to her aunt's doctor, who was able to recommend a man named Dr. Christian Hamburger, an endocrinologist, meaning he specialized in hormones. In their first session, Christine poured out the whole story of her life, every major obstacle and minor detail from her childhood to the current moment. Do you think I'm a homosexual? No. I believe that you are the victim of a problem that usually starts in early childhood. An irresistible feeling that you wish to be regarded by society and by yourself as belonging to the opposite sex. Inwardly, it is quite possible you are a woman. 
your body chemistry and all of your body cells, including your brain cells, may be female. Dr. Hamburger told Christine he thought he could help her. He said he wouldn't even charge her for it. But he did offer her a warning. He told her she was essentially a guinea pig in this experiment. His words hit her like a bolt of lightning. Just refer to me as guinea pig zero, 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 zero. Christine would spend the next three years undergoing treatments. I think the doctors and I are fighting this the right way. Make the body fit the soul, rather than vice versa. It began with what was called a chemical castration. That's where the male hormonal system was put into a slumbering state. The next operation, a removal of her sex glands, couldn't be performed without a legal sanction from the Danish Ministry of Justice. Christine wrote a letter to the ministry begging them to approve her case. She wrote, Without this chance for a future, I know I can't go on living a good, constructive life. To return to my old way of life would destroy all my hopes and ambitions. With these words, you shall judge the whole future of my life. Once the operation was approved, the doctors made an incision into Christine's lower torso. They removed the testicular tissue of the hormone-producing glands. After the surgery, Christine wrote a letter to a friend. Remember the shy, miserable person who left America? Well, that person is no more. I am in marvelous spirits. When it came time to get a new passport with a new name, Christine knew exactly who she wanted to be named after. She transposed Dr. Hamburger's name Christian into a feminine form. Christine. She did it because she said she owed him her life. It was all going so smoothly. That's why Christine felt she was ready to tell her parents that she wouldn't be returning as George. I'm happier and healthier than ever before in my life. I've changed. Nature made a mistake, which I've corrected. I'm now your daughter. I've never been such a real person as I am today. Her mom and dad were stunned. In their minds, their son was just on vacation in Copenhagen, just visiting an aunt. Their initial reaction was to behave as though their son had died. Tears. Mourning. Then came the questions. They felt like they'd failed her by not realizing that something was wrong in the first place. They were concerned and upset. But after a time, they wanted her to know they supported her. They finally sent their telegram in response. Letter and pictures received. We love you more than ever. Christine's intention was only to tell her parents. But her parents told their friends, and a family friend leaked the story to the press. He was apparently paid $200. An unscrupulous New York Daily News reporter convinced her parents to print Christine's letter to them in full. The reporter claimed they needed it in order to get their facts straight. Her parents were not media-savvy people. They had no idea what they were doing, and this man was threatening them. He made it seem like, unless they cooperated, Christine's name was going to be dragged through the mud. Christine's dad said he felt like he was standing in front of a firing squad when he handed over that letter. By 1952, the headlines we mentioned earlier started. XGI becomes Blonde Beauty. And the other one, Bronx Boy is now a girl. And that was it. That's when Christine became famous. The most famous person in the world at the time. 
She was still in Denmark recuperating from her third surgery, the one that removed her underdeveloped male sex organ. But in the United States, she was a celebrity. Christine Jorgensen, who used to answer to George, creates quite a stir as she returns home to New York from Copenhagen. When she returned, she got off a plane at Idlewild Airport in New York City. A scrum of more than 300 eager reporters and paparazzi were waiting. It was the largest assembly of press in the history of that airport. The scene was complete and utter chaos. The flashbulbs were so bright and so blinding that Christine thought for a moment she'd entered Dante's Inferno. But she kept her cool. She radiated A-list glamour. Think Betty Davis in her prime with a little Joan Crawford swagger thrown in for good measure. She had this long fur coat on, a fresh blaze of red across her lips. Her collar worn high like a protective frill surrounding her neck, reminiscent of Elizabeth, the warrior queen. As Christine walked up to the microphone, she pushed a piece of dust from her brow with a crooked finger and a lit cigarette. She gave the cameras exactly what they wanted to see and hear. America's first transgender celebrity. Very impressed by everyone coming. Here's some actual newsreel footage from that day. (laughs) Yes, of course. What American wouldn't be? Have you been offered a movie contract? Yes, but I haven't accepted it. Do you have any plans regarding the theater? No, I don't think so. I'm very happy to be back. And I don't have any plans at the moment. And I thank you all for coming, but I think it's too much. Let's take a quick break here. When we get back, Christine will embark on an entirely new life in America. The life of the country's first transgender celebrity. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb. Tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts? Time ends. Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. From the second Christine set foot back in New York, she was inundated with job offers for paid appearances in nightclubs and strip clubs. There was one woman in New Orleans who offered her $500 a week to co-star with her in a two-woman strip show. 
a man in Buffalo offered to make her the greatest female wrestler of all time. Strippers, nightclub acts, all agents, everybody was jumping on the bandwagon. That's Christine's actual voice in one of the many interviews she did after she returned from Denmark. They wanted me to do everything, including being a lady wrestler. And I have a sense of humor, so I laughed at a lot of them. I saved most of the telegrams. By that time, the whole world was going crazy. There was nowhere to go to hide from the press, especially when she was front-page news. Reporters followed Christine everywhere, including to the DMV to photograph her getting her new driver's license, one that listed her gender as a woman. Those photos from the DMV show were smiling. Apparently, I was going to have to get used to the idea of being stared at and inspected. Now, it's definitely worth noting here that Christine had a lot of privileges when it came to public scrutiny. She wasn't just white. She was very fair with blonde hair and blue eyes. She had a slight frame and soft features that molded so well to the standards of mid-century American beauty. That beauty, her newfound attention, and her charisma quickly put her in the orbit of Hollywood celebrities, agents, and other entertainment hangers-on. The world wanted her to be famous. Still, the major television networks banned Christine from even appearing on them. She remained the butt of jokes. She was often referred to as the fellow who wanted to be his own girl. A series of articles in the New York Post claimed her entire transition had been faked, that Christine was actually still a man. Another article classified her as a spectacle, that she appealed to the squalid recesses of the human mind. It was around this time that Christine got connected to a big-shot agent named Charlie Yates. He also repped Bob Hope. He told her she needed to take her act on the road. She told him, Look, Charlie, I can't sing. I can't dance, and I can't give out snappy chatter. I'm not an entertainer. I'm a basic, simple person with my feet on the ground where they belong. But Charlie didn't balk. He told her he could turn her into a star. Christine would later call him the friendly and benign Svengali behind her entire career. It was Charlie who helped her craft her first nightclub act. In it, she sang. Later on, no one would say she sang well, not even Christine, but she did it with a certain kind of gusto. Welcome to my world. Won't you come on in? Miracle. Christine had this way of half speaking, half singing. Each song became a way of sharing her spirit and character. Not a thing of art, but an act of friendship. Built with you in mind. Her show was a hit from the start. She sold out all the big clubs. The audience loved her. Christine was making upwards of $5,000 a week, which is about forty-five grand today. Here's a couple of the reviews. Miss Jorgensen isn't the best singer in the world or the best dancer, but there's no denying she has the most important ingredient of all, showmanship. This girl is no dummy. Her appearance makes the gals gasp with envy. Her wardrobe is one of the most expensive and elaborate we've seen. Christine looks beautiful. Her gowns are fabulous, and it's pretty hard to imagine this lovely piece of feminine pulchritude was ever able to pass as a boy. Of course, a handful of places refused to book her at all. They cited the problem of immorality. The city of Boston banned her from appearing unless she submitted to a medical examination. And during the tour, she received a warning from the police in charge of the Moral Squad for Washington, D.C. I'm asking you not to use the women's public toilets while you're in Washington. If you dare to use a public restroom, I'll have you picked up and examined by a board of doctors. 
Christine longed to get married. She longed to have what people considered a normal life. But that was never going to be easy for her. She once told an interviewer that transitioning in itself won't make you happy. You know, the phone doesn't ring. People, men don't call for dates because not only am I different, perhaps in some ways, but also being a star, a quota star, whatever that is. It's being in the public eye. Marlena Dietrich has mentioned that many times. Many famous women have. And um, it's an awkward position because a man doesn't want to be rejected and he feels, oh, she's so popular that I'm sure she won't have time for me. The result is nobody calls. So that's um, not unusual, no. She received her first serious marriage proposal at age 33 from a friend named John Traub. Christine was joking with him at the time. She said she was about to become an old maid. Oh, there's a remedy for that, Chris. Will you marry me? When it became clear that he was serious, she did stop to think about it. Christine said that at that age, she was at a point where she felt like life was passing her by. But her affection for John fell short of true love. In her own words, I was enormously fond of John, and I have no doubt that I tried unconsciously to stretch that affection into a larger emotional frame. Christine and John tried to go to City Hall to get a marriage license. It ended up being a bureaucratic nightmare because Christine's gender on her birth certificate was listed as male. Of course, the story was in the paper the next day. The headline, Bar a license for girlish Chris, all because of her boyish past. Their relationship reverted back to a friendship soon after that. Christine received a second proposal from another suitor, Howard Knox, a typist in Washington, D.C., That marriage license was also rejected. Knox reportedly lost his job once their engagement became known. From then on, Christine would date, but marriage seemed to be off the table. By 1968, Christine had reached a new understanding about what her life would be like. She was 42 years old, had been living publicly as a woman for 15 years. She longed for a quieter life. As the sexual revolution and the civil rights movement raged across America, people were clamoring for more representation. Christine developed a lecture titled, Who Am I? Who Are You? She traveled the country talking to students about her experience, about the fluidity and multiplicity of gender. She didn't shy away from anything. She answered all of their questions. But I find uh, on the college campuses, it's incredible. The acceptance is marvelous. Uh, They're fascinated. They're fascinated because we have come into an era of identification, human identification, not only just sexual identity, but who am I? I think the world is far more complex now than it was when I was young. And so the younger generation, they want to find out, where do I belong in this world? Christine was fond of quipping that she'd retired more times than there are people. I think probably the greatest pleasure has been the lecturing. Sometimes when people say, has it been worth it? I said, what a life I've had. If I died tomorrow, life wouldn't owe me a thing. There were so many times that Christine was accused of living a masquerade as a woman. Her response was always that the real masquerade would have been to continue in her former state. That, she said, that would have been living the lie. There's the hope that a clear and honest delineation in my life may lead to a greater understanding of boys and girls who grow up knowing they will not fit into the pattern of life that is expected of them. The intrepid ones, like myself, 
who must take drastic steps to remedy what they find intolerable. Christine received thousands of letters during her life. They came from all over the world. Some were simple notes of thanks, thanking her for her bravery and for living her truth. Others told her she was an inspiration, that her story made them feel like they weren't alone, that it gave them courage to go forward with their own transitions. If you Google the word transgender these days, the rough equivalent of what Christine did when she was searching the library for answers, if you start searching for stories about transgender activists and transgender rights, Christine's name is one of the first that comes up. It came up a lot for Sarah McBride when she was a teenager. Today, as we said, Sarah is the national press secretary for the Human Rights Campaign. But decades ago, she felt a lot like Christine did as a teenager. A lot like a girl trapped inside a masculine body. Christine's story was one of the first that helped Sarah realize things could actually be different for her. We'll hear more from Sarah after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from ATT Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. ATT Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit ATT.com slash hypergig for details. I'm sitting here with Sarah McBride, and I asked her how she first learned of Christine Jorgensen. I've known that I'm transgender my entire life. My earliest memories were of lying in my bed at night praying that I would wake up the next day and be myself. My family would still be proud of me, that my friends would still be my friends, but as a young person, I thought I was the only person like me. I saw a sitcom, and a guest character was introduced, and it was revealed that she was transgender, and she was beautiful. And every single time another character on the show expressed any kind of interest in her, not knowing that she was transgender, the laugh track would cue. And at 10 years old, you don't know a lot, but you know you don't want to be a joke. And when I asked my mom, who I was watching the sitcom with, is this real? Are there people like this? And she said, yes, my heart sank because I knew that I was going to have to tell her this someday and that she would be so scared and so disappointed. 
And so from that moment on, practically every night I'd go online and I'd search transgender. And I'd read about transgender people every day. And one of those individuals who I read about was Christine, who really in many ways introduced our country to transgender people. And so for me, seeing the stories that were written about Christine, which were curious, but they weren't negative stories. That was an important glimpse into my humanity and into a a relatively, at least for that time, affirming view of my humanity. And that can be life-changing, and in this case, it can be life-saving. So you discover Christine's story, and what about her story inspires you? You recognize that when other people have been able to do it, that you can do it too, that if these people could do it, Then in 2007 and 2008 and 2010 and 2011, in the progressive, forward-thinking communities that I'm in, then sure enough, I could do it too. A lot of the work that you're doing today involves getting even more stories out there and educating people so that other people aren't going to feel alone. Tell us a little bit about that. It's much more difficult to hate someone whose story you know. And so in the work that I do and the work that the Human Rights Campaign does and the work that so many advocates around the country do, sharing stories are critical to that fight. The more stories we have, the more opportunities that different kinds of people have those different entry points of shared identities and shared interests that can demonstrate to them that they can do it too, that there's a space in their community or in their culture or in their dreams and passions for people like them. And so after, as a teenager, you're reading these stories on the internet, when did you realize that you were ready to start coming out? For the longest time, I believed that my dreams and my identity were mutually exclusive. I believed that there was no room for me in my community and in my dreams as my authentic self. I came out to my parents on Christmas Day in 2011, completely ruined Christmas. (laughs) Did it completely ruin Christmas? What was everyone's reaction? Definitely ruined Christmas. You know, there's, as I always say, there's not much to do after you open presents, so you might as well just go on in and drop that bomb. Um, I had witnessed my parents, who are progressive, loving, inclusive people, embrace my openly gay brother without missing a beat. But I knew that my news would be different for them because at that point in 2011, like me, they didn't really have many reference points for transgender people who were happy, who were healthy, who were safe, who were fulfilled, who were loved, who were pursuing their dreams, who were in our own community, in our neighborhoods. So they didn't have these kinds of reference points that when my brother came out, they had for gay and lesbian people and bisexual people. You know, while they may have to mourn some of the different kinds of expectations they had for my brother in terms of like what his wedding would look like, that they could still know that my brother had a future. They could still see that future. They could still see that future. And for me, when I came out, there were two things that were different. One was that lack of a reference point for a future. They couldn't see my future. And the second was that, unlike my brother, I'd look different. And when you've known someone for a while looking one way, it's hard to really internalize the fact that even though they're going to look different, that they're still going to be there. And so there was also this sense of loss. And they were incredibly, incredibly clear that they were supportive, but it was through a lot of tears, and it was through a lot of requests for me not to do this, for me to stay in the closet, for me to delay. It was through a lot of exclamations of, I feel like my life is over, I feel like I'm losing my child, I feel like your future is done, what are our friends going to think? 
And that's a fairly common response for parents. But my dad went online that first night after I came out, and he did what I had done so often. He Googled the word transgender. And one of the first things that he came across in that search was an aptly titled report called Injustice at Every Turn by the National Center for Transgender Equality and the National LGBTQ Task Force. And in that report, he came across a whole host of statistics that left him startled and rattled. One in four transgender people fired from their job. One in five transgender people reporting uh, experiencing homelessness at some point in their lives. But the statistic that left him the most disturbed was that 41% of transgender people attempted suicide at some point in their lives. And it's not because transgender people are naturally predisposed to committing suicide. It's because society puts so many barriers in our way to happiness and fulfillment and community and love that nearly half of transgender people decided that they would rather end their life than exist in this world. And so my father also saw, though, a path forward in that report because the statistics demonstrated that when the transgender person is accepted and embraced by their family, that number drops in half. And when they're accepted and embraced by their community, it drops even further. And so my parents knew as parents that their job was to love and support and protect me, and that the only way to do those three things was to embrace me as the daughter that I am. And they did. And they did. And I think when we talk about transgender people coming out, I know after I came out, people would always say to me, I hope you're happy now. And it was always said with the best intentions, but I didn't transition to be happy. I transitioned to be myself. I transitioned to be free to to think and pursue and feel every emotion. And so I, I think what's so important for people to understand is that when a trans person is in the closet, there's a unique pain in being unseen. You and Christine both said that transitioning alone won't make you happy. When can you finally be happy? I think it's the foundation upon which happiness can be built. Being able to live authentically, whoever you are, whether you're transgender or not. I want to talk a little bit about your wedding and the fact that you did get married. It was something that Christine really wanted to do and was never able to. And you were. Yeah, being able to get married was the most important moment in my life. I met the man who would become my future husband, Andy, fighting for... LGBTQ equality, and we fell in love. Andy was a transgender man, about three years older than me. Meeting him, I pretty instantly fell in love with his courage, his optimism, his energy, his brilliance, and really more than anything else, his kindness. About a year into our relationship, Andy was diagnosed with cancer. He was fortunate enough to have insurance. He went through chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery, got a clean bill of health. And then about a year later, he received the news that every single cancer patient fears. Um, His cancer was back, it had spread, and for him it was terminal. So when Andy found out that he didn't have much time left, he asked me to marry him. We married on the rooftop of our apartment building in front of our family and friends in August of 2014. And then just four days after that, he passed away. But for us to be able to have that opportunity to to marry, to formalize what had really been the reality between the two of us long before we exchanged our vows, for me was, I think, the proudest moment of my life to be able to have my dad walk me down the aisle and have the opportunity to marry Andy. And so the fact that Christine longed for that is no surprise to me. And the fact that she was never able to do so, it's a sad 
common reality for far too many people who are denied not just the equal protection of our laws, but dignity and respect and kindness and love from society as well. One of the things that's so profound for me to think about is just how far we've come since Christine was coming out and living her truth. That Christine and so many others have helped to create a world where there are transgender people coming out in every corner of this country at every age, throughout every demographic, in schools and in workplaces, transgender people getting elected to state legislatures and cast in films and teaching classes and leading businesses, that we have made change that seemed so impossible to people like Christine 50, 60, 70 years ago. Thanks so much to our guest, Sarah McBride of the Human Rights Campaign. And maybe by the time you hear this, she will have been elected to the state Senate in Delaware. We wish her all the best. Fierce is hosted and written by Joe Piazza, produced and directed by me, Anna Stump. This episode was co-produced by Michelle Lands. Our executive producers are Joe Piazza, Nikki Etor, Anna Stumpf, and from Tribeca Studios, Leah Sarbib. Christine Jorgensen is voiced by Corinne Hamilton. Additional voices provided by Sam Stumpf and Jenny Stumpf. This episode was edited and soundscaped by Anna Stumpf and Jacopo Penzo. Our associate producer is Emily Marinoff. Fact-checking by Austin Thompson. Research by Lizzie Jacobs. The fierce theme song was written by Hamilton Lighthouser and Anna Stump. Our very sincere thanks to Mangesha Tikador for making this series possible. And to Nikki Etor, our co-executive producer, who did so much for this show and with consistent good humor. Sources for this episode, Christine Jorgensen, a personal autobiography by Christine Jorgensen. A Universal International News report by Fred Manis with footage of Christine Jorgensen arriving at Idlewild Airport in 1951. The article, Bronx Boy is Now a Girl, from the New York Times in December of 1952. The article, XGI Becomes Blonde Beauty, from the New York Daily News in December of 1952. An interview with Christine Jorgensen conducted by the BBC in 1970. An interview with Christine Jorgensen conducted by Our Magazine in May of 1984. An Associated Press article in the LA Times from June 1986 titled Famed Transsexual Christine Jorgensen out of the spotlight. Uncredited footage and interviews titled Christine in Denmark, Parts 1 and 2. Various clips, footage, and reviews of Christine's stage act referenced throughout the episode. Thanks so much for listening. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, 
LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.